Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. Sponsored by Deluxe's Encore. Encore proudly supports cinematographers from pre to post by providing industry-leading color artistry and innovative technology for any show, anywhere in the world. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. Today I'm joined by Tammy Riker, ASC, who is here to talk about her work on the pilot for Cloak and Dagger. Based on the Marvel comic series of the same name, Cloak and Dagger follows the relationship between Tandy and Tyrone, teenagers who discover that they both have superpowers. Tyrone can shield himself in darkness, Tandy can make daggers of light, and a dark connection in their past. When they realize that their powers work better together than separately, they join forces, and the result is a series that has already become one of the most popular in the Freeform Network's history. The Cloak and Dagger pilot reunites Riker with director Gina Prince-Bythewood, with whom she worked on Beyond the Lights, Shots Fired, and Disappearing Acts. It's an inventive reimagining of the comic book genre that's as much about its characters' emotional turmoil and their urban landscape social divisions as it is about superpowers and special effects. Riker strikes the perfect balance between fantasy and realism with her lighting style, which I'm excited to speak with her about today. Uh, I guess I want to start with the origins of the piece. I'm assuming it came to you based on the working relationship that you had established with Gina Prince-Bythewood on previous films and TV shows. Uh, When did she bring it to you, and and what stage was it at? Was it a pretty locked script? Uh, When Gina called me about Cloak and Dagger, yeah, it was a locked script already. So she was very excited to enter into the Marvel universe and called me and said, let's do this together. So I got on the phone uh, with, the, with the writer and executive showrunner, the executive producer, and um, we had, the three of us had a conversation and we all got along and then Gene and I started plotting and talking about the look. What was that early conversation like? What kinds of things did you and Gina and the showrunner talk about? Well, they wanted, they, he really wanted it to be very grounded in reality. He, you know, he said he wanted this to be Marvel's indie movie. And he wanted it to be gritty, and it was going to be set in New Orleans for New Orleans, which was very exciting because a lot of times you're shooting these pilots in... Vancouver for Michigan or, you know, (laughs) Atlanta for New York. And so it was really exciting to be able to use New Orleans as a character and, you know, to use sites that everybody knows, like the cemetery and not trying to hide anything. And And I think later on they even bring in Mardi Gras and a lot of New Orleans flavor. But our conversations were definitely about, you know, that it would be gritty pretty, you know, that Tandy's world would be very glowing and beautiful, but it's a gritty reality that she lives in. She's practically, she's homeless. And what was your initial response when you, when you read the script? I mean, what did you, what were the first things that go through your mind? Are you, are you the kind of cinematographer who, when you read a script, are you right off the bat thinking about how it should look, what the lighting should be like? Do you just read for fun? I I would say, no, I just read it first. I read it for fun. I'm absorbing the characters, the locations. 
Um, I remember, you know, absorbing like, whoa, every other page. It starts with, it's pouring rain. (laughs) 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 It just seemed to be, in the script, raining constantly. But uh, And that turned out to be a great element to it. You know, we made a lot of rain, and we got a lot of rain in New Orleans. Um, But then afterwards, you know, with speaking to Gina, we know each other so well. We've watched, you know, this is our fourth collaboration, so we've watched so many films together for past projects. So we already have a, a second hand of, you know, we know things we love, we don't love. We talked about other movies that we'd seen in the past, you know, to bring into this, which one of them, one of our favorite movies is Like Crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, we talked about using... The handheld style, we just like in Beyond the Lights, you know, it keeps it very real and dynamic. Those were some of our first conversations about shooting it handheld, but yet this was a Marvel pilot and we wanted to expand that world. And even though the camera is motivated by the characters and never taking off on its own or, or showing the audience something that the character doesn't see, we knew we wanted to add some bigger elements to this, some drones, some, some movie, some real movement. And speaking of the Marvel comic book, I mean, did you look at all at the Cloak & Dagger comic books? Were those any kind of visual reference for you? Or was it more just responding to what the... Right. They were, yeah, we look. I mean, it was interesting. I had never seen them. So, of course, we, you know, she got a stack of them immediately. (laughs) But they were not a visual reference. It's so different. And these are teenagers, and they, they seem much older in the comic book. Well, since you mentioned, you know, this being a Marvel pilot, you know, something that's struck me about it is, you know, it is, it does have the Marvel, it's an interesting blend of like the typical Marvel sensibility with, as you say, something darker, something grittier, but you're also dealing with trying to shoot something, a Marvel movie, essentially, on a freeform network TV budget and schedule. So what are some of the challenges inherent in in that? So that was definitely something we, Gene and I, always had in the back of our mind. We were thinking, you know, this is Marvel. The Marvel fans expect a certain quality of stunts and explosions, and but it wasn't the budget of Avengers. Or <laughs> so we uh, we had an amazing team down there. This is another great thing about shooting in New Orleans is. Uh, you know, once it became one of the tax incentive states, there's incredible crews down there that have done huge budget movies. So that was very exciting. So we had amazing people. I think the only person I brought was my first AC, but everyone else was from, was local. And um, so the one of the biggest stunts that, that we had, one of the most complicated, was young Tandy going over the causeway at night into the Mississippi River as the explosion is happening and the car is sinking and she's trapped inside. And uh, the car is filling up with water. And, you know, and, oh, and the semi-truck went over the bridge and now is coming down straight on them, (laughs) just to add another element. (laughs) And then, you know, ties in the same water at the same time. How are their powers are united? And he comes and sticks his hand through this moon roof. And so that was all very exciting. And then we find out from Freeform, because Freeform is Disney, that, you know, as it should be, they're very strict about young actors and anything in any type of danger, and that 
the young Tandy and Tyrone could only be in waist deep water. And so <laughs> that added a whole other element to figuring out how to accomplish this because we tried to do so much in camera and we did we did so many effects in camera i mean when i look at it now and i look at the dagger that was it's almost identical to the dagger we built with the led lights in her hand you know they just enhanced it you know so a lot of what we did everything in camera and then visual effects enhanced it even the truck coming down on them we you know we made like a fake grill and had two headlights coming down we shot that coming at the camera and shot it coming down to the car and then they built in a truck around it but most of the effects except for you know Tyrone's darkness which is a real visual effect mm -hmm. were done in camera but back to the car so the visual effects department created this incredible car that we called the aquarium car that could be on a stage and they put aquarium windows around every window of the car and so there and then put it in a small little tank so that wa warm water could fill up as she was sitting in there and when you're looking out the window you see swirling dirty Mississippi River but it's only a little aquarium uh -huh. around each the car is not submerged and they're also very you know there had to be two ways in and out so you could take off the front windshield or the back windshield she always had a way in or out and uh, it was just such an incredible solution you know we were able to light it really well we were you know I was in there with her, shooting handheld. It was like a nice little sauna, a little bubble bath in there. <laughs> um, well, the the use of handheld camera work throughout the pilot is really interesting, and you you know you sort of touched on it a little bit with the the like crazy influence. And I'm wondering just what was your kind of, for lack of a better word, philosophy about how and when to camera move the camera, and what kind of what was the sort of uh, Tone, overall tone that you were trying to convey? Well, the, the use of the handheld camera was to, to keep it feeling very real and very connected to those two characters. And a lot of the times, it, even if it was just breathing, even if it was just that tiny little bit of breathing as opposed to, you know, rapidly whipping around the room, most of the time it wasn't. It was just following. Even when we would do a dolly shot, I would sit on the dolly handheld. And then uh, there were some big chase sequences in that um, I, I had just used the movie for a commercial and was just convinced, Gina, it was the best tool ever, <laughs> which it is. It's so exciting. I mean, I haven't, I like Steadicam. I'm not a huge fan of Steadicam. And what you get, the mobility with movie is incredible. And what, you know, I think that the part that really convinced Gina was that I could be at the wheels mm -hmm. and I would have final frame. You know, it wasn't this other person you were communicating with. You know, she could stand right with me at the monitor, at the wheels. And so after the big chase, settle into that end frame. Although sometimes he ran so fast, I was like, you just got to take it, dude. I can't even, I can't move that fast with you. And, but he could run backwards and forwards, high, low. You didn't have to wait for the steady count to be, you know, go from high mode to low mode mm -hmm. to, it's such an incredible tool. And chasing through the cemetery, he was able to uh, weave in and out through those tombstones, no problem. It seemed sometimes I was like, wow, it's really narrow. And he had a way of configuring the movie that it was no problem to squeeze in and out of there. 
Well, the whole show has a really nice balance between feeling like the camera work is purposeful and designed and yet also kind of capturing things on the fly. And I'm curious how much, you know, when you're dealing with chase scenes or really anything in the show, where do you fall on the spectrum of how much is planned out? You know, how much is, do you storyboard? Do you shot list? How much of it is just responding to what the actors are doing in the moment? I mean, is it a combination of the two? It's a combination. I mean, Gina and I definitely, uh, we shot list everything and have overhead diagrams of every space and have talked through the angles, acted out the angles. And, uh, we always come to set an hour before call and then go through our shot list one more time. But then there is a spontaneity when you are handheld to grab things, to pick things up, you know, to move with the actors, lighting in a way where they have this freedom to move. But we're still always going back to our shot list to make sure we got every detail we wanted to, every close-up, every, you know. And how many cameras were you shooting with? It was two cameras. Mm. Um, and... So do you, is the, is the two camera thing, is that uh, an aesthetic choice? Is it a scheduling choice? Is it so you can get all the it's coverage It's a scheduling yeah. choice, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it, I, these were, you know, as most pilots are, they're, they're, you know, 14, 15 hour days. It's very, and that's not with traveling an hour back and forth to set. And uh, you just, you want, a lot of times the, you get a long, you get, you know, anywhere between 12 to 18 days usually or 20 days to shoot a pilot. And then the episodes are nine days. Mm-hmm. So you get more time, more money. Although sometimes, you know, because it is the pilot, there might be scenes that don't actually end up in it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're shooting each episode, I think everything ends up in there. <laughs> so, cause you don't have the time. So it, it's definitely, uh, it's exciting in that way, but because of the time pressure, the two cameras made a huge difference. That leads me to a couple other questions that are just sort of specific to shooting pilots. Uh, because as you mentioned on a pilot, you've got a little bit more time and money than they're going to have shooting the actual episodes of the series. Do you, are you conscious of that when you're shooting the pilot? Are you conscious of the fact that you have to create a visual style that uh, if you are not shooting the series, someone else is going to have to replicate with less time and less money than you have? And how do you work that out? I, I would say in the pilots that I've shot, no. You, you're, you're creating a vision, and then you're handing off that vision. I mean, the... The network or the studio definitely has guidelines for what camera you can are allowed to use and broadcast specs. But otherwise, unless, you know, you do get more toys in the pilot, so you want it to be spectacular. And then the next DP comes along, and you usually you have a conversation. And I, I would say, you know, it, they stick with the same camera and lenses, but then certain techniques are... You know, they put their own stamp on it. Well, since you brought up camera and lenses, let's talk about that a little bit. What uh, what kind of camera was dictated to you by the network? Well, Freeform, yeah. So we use the Alexa Mini. They don't have that 4K rule, thank okay. goodness, which I hear is fading. So that's. <laughs> but now Ari has a 4K camera, so that's... But we use the Mini. I am a big fan of the Mini because I always operate movies, pilots, whatever I'm shooting. And... Um, you know, I have a way of getting that mini down to like, you know, 13 pounds. Mm-hmm. So when you're shooting, you know, 14 hour day, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. 
that it's that it's light. And what kind of uh, lens package did you have? We used the Leica, the Sumalux. They're a T13, and then we used a half locon, which the Leicas are very sharp, and then the half locon takes the edge off the sharpness and lowers the contrast, but also like the main reason I use it, it creates that incredible bloom when you shoot into the lights. Mm -hmm. And we shot into all the lights on this pilot. <laughs> it was especially for Tandy, that was part of her look and her feel was this, you know, she's about light, he's about darkness. She emits, you know, she emits shards of glass from her hand. Mm -hmm. And when she has her flashbacks, we, we created that style where it's this flash of light. We would flare the camera, and that's what sent her into her flashbacks, remembering at the ballet studio, remembering that her parents were there and they loved her and how happy they were as a family. But even at the ballet, having the lights swing and flare the lens, having that half low con filter on there, the light hits in and it just blooms. Mm -hmm. And where did that idea come from? I mean, is that something you had tried out on other yes. shows? Yes. Yeah. We did the same thing on Beyond the Lights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We didn't flare it as much in Beyond the Lights. There it was more to lower the contrast. But uh, the joke was on Cloak and Dagger with the gaffer. I mean, every single shot had some type of lighting cue, flare, light emitting from someone's hand. Nice. <laughs> How did you achieve the effect of the light emitting from her hand when her hand would sort of turn into the dagger? We had a little tiny LED panel taped to her hand, and um, and it was on remote, so the gaffer had a dimmer, and he could dimmer it up and down. So in the exact moment, you know, that that was coming from her hand, he would dim it up. And then the prop department created several different daggers until we found, we went with the thinnest one, knowing that they could always make it thicker later. Mm-hmm. Um. Something else I liked about this show a lot is I feel like it does have the kind of attention to detail in terms of character that something like Beyond the Lights has, but then you're merging that with, again, this Marvel comic book kind of, uh, kind of world. And I'm curious, you know, how you see your role as a cinematographer in terms of the actors. I mean, do you see, you know, do you see part of your job as creating an environment that will facilitate their best work? Because I feel like the you know, the performances across the board and everything you and Gina have done together, that's, they're always great. And is that, does any of that fall on you or do you think of that as like, oh, that's her job, I don't have to worry about that? No, we work really closely together and I know Gina so well and I know that characters, that the actors are the most important thing to her and, um, and that having them, the ability to move and not be too restricted. I mean, obviously, you know, they hit their marks and we make marks, but to have that freedom for them to move and that the cinematography doesn't, that I'm not stopping them or inhibiting them, you know, because I know that's so important to her. We work together with, and because we know each other so well, you know, I can come up and be like, I think we should grab this detail or that tail. Did you see that look in the eye? Let's do, you know. So we're, because I'm operating, I'm two or three feet from the actors and she's back at a monitor. So we have a constant dialogue going back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, getting back around to something I was asking about with, in terms of the handheld camera work. Um, so there's a lot of movement in the show. A lot of it's handheld. A lot of it, as you say, even when you're on a dolly, you're handheld. I, 
did you feel like there were moments in the show where you didn't want to do that, where you wanted to remain still? And if so, when did you do that? Or was it, or did you want it just to kind of constantly? No, we were constantly. Yeah. I mean, it's something that we did in Beyond the Lice. Once we committed, there was no uh, going back, which meant every stunt in the car, every, you know, I was strapped in the back seat shooting handheld. Like it was all, even moments, you know, when the key grip is looking at you like, come on, let me just safety that down. You're like, that's not what we, you know, it's not part of our movement. And it does create happy accidents and it creates energy. I mean, it would definitely would have been much easier in that car when this, the, we used the uh, stunt coordinator, Andy, played the father. So that worked out really well. So he drove the car. And um, when we went back later to pick up little things of headlights coming at us, he was able to drive the car, and I could go from his hands to his face to the... But all of that we had committed to handheld. It was trickier in Beyond the Lights because there was more car dialogue stuff, and once you've committed to that, then there's no hostess tray out the side because that's locked off, you know, so <laughs> we would, but I love the way it worked in Beyond the Lights. It forced us to use these French overs and for me to climb in the back seat of that truck and really just wedge myself in and drive with them, you know. And when you're doing a pilot, and again, it's, you know, a show that the network is counting on to establish a world that will hopefully last for years and years, um, what kind of, I guess, are there other do you have pressures on you that are not there on a normal feature in terms of if you're doing that kind of bold style, are there a lot of people who you have to kind of sell on that idea, you know, at the network level? There, there is, definitely more so than a film, you know, because of course people get scared, you know. Is this going to go too far? What are we doing? What if it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of, you know, what if it doesn't broadcast well? I, I did it um, getting on for HBO, and we did all these tests, and we were, you know, we were matching the British show, and it was—I don't know what it was shot on, but it was really, really grainy and and really funny. And he really wanted Miguel wanted that look, and so you know, we're like, well, if we, you know, go at five thousand ASA, it's pretty amazing. It looks just like that, and uh, HBO freaked out. <laughs> this is never going to broadcast. <laughs> so, that was one time where we had to scale it back and we settled on 2500 for the pilot, but then I heard for the show they went to like 800. Mm -hmm. So they went back. So that's, um, you know, in, in Carnival, we flashed the film for the pilot and then they didn't want to keep that up. They decided they, could, they did the look in post. So sometimes you do something more extreme for the pilot and they water it down a bit or find a, a safer way to continue with that look. And so do you, in the early stages, were you doing a lot of testing? And when you're doing the testing, is it just for your and Gina's benefit or is it something that you have to show the network and the showrunner and... Well, the sh yeah, you, I mean, Gina and the showrunner, he was fantastic. So he would watch it first. And then he actually played the good cop, bad cop with the network. And if, you know, this, and Cloak and Dagger, they, they were very, they wanted something different. Mm -hmm. So they were excited. And nothing we were doing would affect broadcast quality. 
That that's been the one time that HBO show with that was really <laughs> an issue. <laughs> And how much of your work on the show was uh, in post? I guess I'm thinking both in terms of working with the visual effects people and in terms of altering the look in the DI. I mean, it sounds like you were really trying to get as much as possible in camera. Yes. So the the visual effects, they, they enhanced the dagger and they created the darkness. But we did a lot. Most of it was in camera. And then in the, in the DI... Uh, Again, this is a great thing about shooting a pilot, which you don't have this when you're doing the series. I mean, we had two, we begged for another half day, two and a half days, and it was like a movie, mm-hmm. D.I. And so it's my favorite, you know, one of my favorite parts is you get to go in and like take that shadow up the wall, take this down, take that little window here, little window there. You're really perfecting it. And when you're shooting the episodes, you're not in the room. You're shooting, and there, you might at the very end get a day to go over ten episodes. <laughs> we did two and a half days for our pilot, so that and mostly it was just tweaking and you know my own little obsessive moments. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the overall look of the show didn't evolve. Uh, no, no. I mean, I remember the DI guy, the colored. Just was like you like these windows, huh? And I was like, well, <laughs> yes. It's like you get to paint all over again, uh-huh. you know. But it also it, it helps you speed wise when you're shooting. If you know that you're going to have that time at the end, you know, okay, I don't need to set a topper. I'm gonna, I can easily go in and take that down, right? And you can so easily and seamlessly. Where was the uh, post work done? At Encore Video mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Um, so this project, you know, again, it seems to me like one of the cool things about it is it's on the one hand has a lot of the stuff I associate with your and, and Gina's work from before, but it's also this kind of step forward into a new direction. And I wanted to ask, because you had mentioned before we began recording this, that you're working on something new with her. And is that, uh, what's that? And is it kind of another logical next step in the evolution of your partnership? Yes, so Gina um, is directing this movie, The Old Guard. It's based on a graphic novel. Sky Dance is producing it, and uh, it's a much bigger budget than anything we've done, and it's really exciting. It's going to be in Morocco and Paris and London and Malta. You know, when you read it, you're just like, wow, this is like Mission Impossible. (laughs) And... uh, it's, again, grounded and based in reality, except they have tiny little powers, you know. And they have the ability to regenerate this group of assassins, so. Well, obviously, you and Gina have a very, uh, you know, fruitful collaboration. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you think are the sort of key components to a successful director-cinematographer relationship? I mean, what is it that has... And, and how has yours... Uh, evolved over the years? I mean, was this something that you felt fully formed when you first worked together, or is it something that morphs from movie to movie? Or uh, When we did Disappearing Acts together, we, I mean, I would definitely say the key is listening. You know, we both listen to each other. I listen to her, her ideas, you know, digest it, think about it, come back with my idea. She listens. We're very, so we have that kind of open, respected relationship where we're listening to each other. And as Gina likes to always say that, you know, 
the thing she loves the most is that I'm so ride or die. Like, there's always a moment in all of our movies, there's one point where I either faint or, like, you know, <laughs> nearly, like, get killed. Or <laughs> so she loves that I operate because it just makes our relationship that much closer, you know, that she has, for her, it's one less person to speak to, you know. Right. The person that prepped the movie with her is operating the camera. So we're very connected in that way. And have you always operated? Do you ever shoot something you don't operate? I've always operated. And mm-hmm. actually yesterday she said, are you going to operate on this big movie? And I said, well, I think we need to. <laughs> I said, for the intimate stuff, when we're in the, you know, Hummer, when we're in the, you know, yes. But for the big things, I need to be, you know, at the DIT tent. Mm-hmm. So this will be interesting for us. This is yeah. a growing <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was the moment on Cloak and Dagger where you nearly, uh, where you ro- rode or died? <laughs> when the uh, when the stuntman was swerving for the truck, you know, it was like 4.30 in the morning, pouring rain, and they're like, all right, one more, and then we're wrapped. And I did not have my seatbelt on at that moment. It went slamming into the door, and in the follow van, all they could hear was, you know, me dropping F-bombs. <laughs> and then in the aquarium car, I was in, the, it was like sitting in a sauna because mm-hmm. the little girl and I were like, oh, make the water warmer. Oh, no, just warmer. Because the day before I had been in the swimming pool with young Ty and it was freezing. And, uh, but after four hours, I was like, I have to get out of here. I'm going down. <laughs> and we were just laughing about it because we were like, oh, here we are again, having a moment. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because I think all that stuff kind of seeps into the DNA of the movie. I mean, I do feel like, again, Cloak and Dagger, it's got this kind of raw energy to it that you maybe, again, wouldn't have if you weren't following that sort of ride or die (laughs) philosophy and operating yourself and having that kind of intimate relationship with the actors and the action. Uh, Well, I really appreciate you coming in to talk with me about this. It's a great pilot and uh, everybody should watch it. And uh, I really look forward to your next collaboration with Gina on the even bigger yes. <laughs> uh, genre movie. So this has been Jim Hemphill and Tammy Riker. Thanks for listening to the American Cinematographer Podcast. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.